Friends, good evening. On behalf of uh, Princeton Theological Seminary, through the Office of Multicultural Relations, the Latinx Collegium at Princeton Seminary, the Hispanic Theological Initiatives, and our Religion and Society Department, I would like to take this opportunity to welcome each and every one of you, members of our seminary community, our guests that have traveled far to be here. Uh, we have had a powerful and edifying day, uh, beginning at 12 o'clock with uh, Dr. Roddy uh, Rodan Figueroa, who is uh, the associate professor of the history of Christianity at Boston University School of Theology. And he brought us an understanding and awareness of the historical uh, realities of uh, the sanctuary movement and the creation of the sanctuary movement and the socioeconomic political realities of that formation. Then at two o'clock, we had the honor of hearing two panelists, uh, Dr. Mark Lewis Taylor, who is our Maxwell M. Upson Professor of Theology and Culture, and Dr. Patricia Fernandez Kelly, who is the Professor of Sociology and Research Associate at the Office of Population Research at Princeton University. And they both brought a sociological and theological uh, grounding as to the realities of what has taken place, uh, particularly within uh, Central America, and the, and the reasons why there have been this mass exodus and, as well, migration uh, to the United States. Hard news to have heard, but a reality for us as the church to understand what is the focus as well as the uh, particular um, ministry opportunities that we have in order to uh, relate to and to minister to a people that have been oppressed and have been displaced. And so uh, today we also had in our worship experience the Reverend Jennifer Rodriguez, who is the pastor of the uh, First Presbyterian Church in Ossining, New York, a congregation that is actively relating to and ministering with a diverse uh, demographic community composed of individuals that uh, have been displaced and are moving forward uh, accordingly. And she shared with us the challenges of that ministry, and but as well the opportunities that exist. At this moment, it gives us a great opportunity to uh, continue to hear from our particular resources. In at the two o'clock um, panel, we also heard and uh, were led by our very own uh, Reverend Francisco Palaez Diaz who moderated uh, the conversation eloquently. Uh, and uh, Francisco is uh, a PhD student here, PhD candidate in our religion and society department. And Francisco's research focuses on the appropriation of the no notion of the crucified peoples as coined by Latin American theologian Ignacio Elacuria. 
So we are grateful for Francisco as well and his leadership. At this moment, I am honored uh, to present to you and to introduce you to Dr. Juan D. Gonzalez, who is the Richard B. Hefner Professor of Communications and Public Policy and Professor of Professional Practice in Journalism and Media Studies, and will be the keynote speaker of this, the fall semester Edencia Lecture. Dr. Gonzalez is an award-winning broadcast journalist and investigative reporter, a two-time winner of the George Polk Award. He is co-host of Democracy Now! and author of Harvest of Empire, A History of Latinos in America, and a founder of the National Association of Hispanic Journalists. He spent over 29 years as a columnist for the New York Daily News, and Dr. Gonzalez's research interests include journalism, mass media history, federal mass communications policy, and history of Latinos in the United States, Puerto Rico, and the US relations, immigration, race, and labor relations. His areas of expertise have centered on urban affairs and investigative reporting with a special focus on municipal land use and tax policies, public education, criminal justice, race relations, the trade union movement, immigration, and the Latino community. One of Dr. Gonzalez's books, as mentioned before, Harvest of Empire, A History of Latinos in America, has been used for more than a decade as a required text in nearly 200 college Latino history and ethnic study courses. A 2012 feature documentary based on the book narrated by Dr. Gonzalez garnered several major documentary awards. In addition, the 2013 PBS series Latino Americans featured interviews with him in three of its six segments. A most recent work he co-authored in 2011, News for All the People, the Epic Story, Race, and the American Media is currently used in several college media history courses. Before beginning his career in journalism, Dr. Gonzalez spent several years as a Latino community and civil rights activist, helping to found and lead two national organizations, the Young Lords Party during the late 1960s and the National Congress for Puerto Rican Rights during the late 1970s. It is truly a privilege and an honor for us to have Dr. Gonzalez here with us, and we welcome you today to the Edencia Lectures. Please join me. Uh, thank you, and good evening to you all. Uh, my thanks to Dr. Victor Aloyo and the organizers of this conference uh, for your invitation to share some thoughts with you tonight. Uh, I, my apologies for not attending the earlier panels, 
but I'm recovering from a uh, pretty strong uh, cold and still under the weather a little bit. And uh, I'm going to apologize beforehand if I have cough a couple of times during this presentation. I congratulate you on what appears to have been a stimulating and very necessary series of discussions on the roots of our nation's current Central American migration. The crisis is certainly most visible in the nearly 13,000 children now being held in immigration detention in the United States by the Trump administration. Five times the number that was being detained just a year ago. The heartbreaking images of infants and toddlers being separated from their families and housed in tent cities or with strangers in faraway group homes are almost too much to bear. Moreover, immigration detention has become perhaps the fastest growing part of the prison industrial complex. Private prisons house about 9% of the nation's total prison population, but they hold a much higher share of immigrant detainees. About 73% of all immigrant detainees are being housed in private prisons that are exploding in number. This latest crisis is only the most poignant manifestation of failed immigration policies by our leaders in Washington over many decades. In an even broader sense, I would argue, it is an indictment of the industrial nations of the world and their refusal to adequately address the massive international flows of migrants and refugees unleashed by war, violence, and economic turmoil across the global south. I applaud your efforts to tackle not only the economic and social impacts of the crisis, but the profound moral questions raised by these failures. Before I delve into this topic, you should understand a little about my perspective. I've always considered myself more a professional journalist than a historian, having devoted more than 40 years now to reporting day-to-day -day events in the areas of urban politics, economics, crime, law enforcement, labor and race relations, what in my profession we typically refer to as hard news. I've thus been fortunate to earn my living bearing witness to thousands of events, big and small, interviewing the famous and the infamous and the little known, then trying to explain an often complex subject in a way that makes sense to a broader public. During all that time, I've done something else that many of my colleagues in journalism refuse to do. I've tried to study and analyze the social role of our mass media system. I've thus become acutely aware of the extraordinary role news media play in creating the memory bank of any nation. Newspapers, after all, were often called the first draft of history, at least until the rise of the internet and the birth of social media turned every person with a smartphone into a multimedia cub reporter. The incidents the media choose to report, their interpretation of events inevitably serve as raw material that was then mined by scholars who came decades or centuries later to chisel more comprehensive historical accounts. It is thus from the perspective of a working and hopefully conscious journalist that I offer some of my thoughts on the great immigration debate in general and the roots of the Central American migration crisis in particular. Latinos, of course, are at the center of that debate. 
given that about 50% of all migration to the United States since World War II has come from Latin America, and that about two-thirds of the undocumented immigrants are from that region. I should note that annual migration from India and China in recent years has surpassed that from Mexico, which for decades was the largest sender nation. Uh, even as we've witnessed an unprecedented increase in asylum seekers and refugee applicants from Central America. The number of asylum seekers and refugees who abandoned the Central American region increased from just 18,000 in 2011 to 294,000 at the end of last year, according to the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. The number grew 58% last year alone. At the same time, the number of Central American applications for refugee status uh, has also risen sharply. Of 350,000 applications between 2011 and 2017, 130,000, nearly 40%, were filed last year. How and why has this happened? What, massive migration, what does massive migration signal for this country? Is it a danger and a curse, as some would argue, or is it a blessing, a basis for renewal and renaissance of the best of the American dream? That's the basic question, after all. Sadly, so much of the debate around immigration has resulted in undue attention to those who yell the loudest, thus producing more heat than light, more one-sided sloganeering than dispassionate discourse, more stoking of the worst emotions among the American public, instead of offering an honest attempt to understand the roots of the problem, then devise the most humane and sensible solutions. I will be frank. We face an unprecedented demagogic assault on the country's immigrant population. That assault comes directly from the president of our nation and a large section of the ruling party, of his ruling party, and it threatens the very basis of our democracy. The words of a president matter, after all. Build a wall and Mexico will pay for it. In this case, the tweets matter as well. They grab headlines, they drive news coverage, they're analyzed and dissected by thousands of government bureaucrats, by the leaders of other countries, and they inspire reactions by his most fervent opponents and supporters, sometimes with tragic consequences. When a leader tramples facts so often and with such disdain, so will his followers. The world is familiar, but too often forgets, other tragic examples of physical walls erected between peoples. The Berlin Wall, for example, that once separated East and West Germany. The wall built by Israel to separate Palestinians and Jews in the West Bank. And of course, the most famous of them all, the 1,500-mile-long Great Wall of China which took that country's emperors centuries to build against the Huns and which remains our planet's greatest testimony to human insecurity. But I hope in the minutes I have left this evening to puncture a far more dangerous barrier, a psychological one. Call it the Great Wall of Ignorance that deeply divides the American public on this issue of the immigration crisis and its roots. Nearly 20 years ago, I published Harvest of Empire, the history of Latinos in America has been mentioned, in an attempt to get to the roots of Latino migration. The main thesis of both my book and the, the film that came out uh, based on it a decade later is that you cannot understand the presence 
so many Latinos in this country unless you first understand the historic role of the United States in Latin America. The Latinos of this country, in short, are the harvest of an empire through an unintended harvest, the result of America's policies of military intervention and economic exploitation of Latin America during the 19th and early 20th century. You don't hear any mention of this in all the commercial media coverage of immigration. Moreover, our nation's migration upsurge is not unique. In recent years, we've seen the heartbreaking images of boat people crossing the Mediterranean to get to Italy, Greece, and the Balkan states, with thousands perishing at sea in their attempts, but tens of thousands reaching Europe and overwhelming the resources of those countries to process or handle them. And where are these migrants from? From Syria, from Libya, from Iraq, from Somalia, from Yemen. Countries where, during the past two decades, military interventions by our government and NATO and occupations and targeted bombings and assassinations have unfortunately and tragically led to greater violence and instability in those countries than previously existed. These sudden, ups, these sudden surges of people fleeing one country for another did not arise from thin air or from individual decisions to simply seek a better life in another country. Rather, they are mass manifestations of profound flaws in the economic and political systems of our modern world. Much of it, I would submit to you, is the unintended harvest of the West's past colonial empires. Only now, those empires operate under a new mantle of economic and political domination commonly called globalization of the market. Ever since the end of World War II, the peoples of Asia, Africa, and Latin America, a region once called the Third World and today sometimes referred to as the Global South, have been coming to the West. England is grappling with what to do about all the pa Pakistanis, Indians, and Jamaicans who have migrated there. Likewise, France with all the Algerians, Tunisians, and Moroccans, Germany with all the Turks, and now the Syrians, and the United States, our leaders have grappled for decades with what to do about all the Latin Americans and Caribbean peoples, and increasingly Africans and Asians who have migrated here. The key thing to understand is that the migrations have come from the very countries that those powers once dominated. Uh, the, uh, the idea was to just extract the resources. There was never any thought that the people <laughs> Uh, whose resources were being extracted would one day, because of the advances in communications and transportation, uh, follow uh, the wealth that was taken from their lands. These mass migrations have been going on for several decades now in this country and are now reaching what scientists call critical mass, where they have begun to transform the actual compositions of the receiving nations. But while the U.S. shares the same reality that it's that migrants are uh, co coming from the former colonies, there's one big difference between our history and that of Europe and Japan. This was an immigrant settler state from the start, a nation constructed and pieced together through seizing the land of others by force, the Native Americans and the Mexicans, and then hauling enslaved Africans to work in the South. And of course, as far as the Native peoples are concerned, all who came after Columbus are illegals. For more importantly, given the successive waves of immigration to the US after its founding, immigration policy has continually sparked 
national controversy. There's always been controversy in an immigrant nation about who is legitimately in the country and who is not. Whether it's from the, the, the Know Nothing movement against the Irish in the 1850s, whether it's the Chinese Exclusion Act in the 1880s that made it illegal for more than 60 years for Chinese and, uh, and other Asians to come into the country. Uh, whether it was the Immigration Acts of 22 and 24 and the racial quotas imposed uh, on anyone other than uh, Northern European uh, immigrants, and whether it was the last major battle before what we're going through now, the Hart-Sellers Act of, eight, of 1965, the Immigration Reform Act, which was the last major reform of our immigration system. It ended the previous policy, which had been effectively racist, that favored immigration from Northern Europe, and it augured in a new, more democratic system of granting immigration visas. But while Hart Sellers solved some problems, the racial quotas, for example, it created others in what was perhaps an idealistic and ultra-democratic approach to immigration visa allocations by basically de determining a same equal amount of visas for every country uh, uh, in, uh, in the world. And uh, of course, then created problems for the main sender nations of the time, which were uh, Mexico, China, and the Philippines. That's where most of the migrants were coming uh, uh, after World War II. Um, it is in this context that we must view the impact of the words of our president. For example, he tweeted uh, earlier this year that, quote, big flows of people are illegally entering the US from Mexico to, quote, take advantage of DACA. Nonsense. In fact, current border crossers are not eligible for deferred action for childhood arrivals program. Only children who were brought to this country years ago. The president is simply angry that federal courts have prevented him from rescinding DACA protections for students who have already have them. But right now, no new DACA applications are being considered, and the Supreme Court will likely decide the matter in the next few months. The president who claims he feels for the dreamers is the very person using their fate as a gambling bit in his fight to build a wall. These young dreamers are in the tradition of the young college kids who fought for voting rights in the South. They are freedom fighters of our time, demanding that they be treated fairly by the only country they've ever known, not punished for a situation they had no hand in creating. As to Trump's tweets that there's a liberal democratic law called catch and release of people caught illegally crossing the border, that's also false. Rather, it is mostly a policy that existed under both Democratic and Republicans for years, uh, and one that the Trump administration claimed last year to have reversed. It originally came about because of a federally approved settlement in 1997 called the Flores Agreement. Under that agreement, the Department of Homeland Security could detain unaccompanied children for only 20 days before releasing them to foster families. Uh, or to shelters or sponsors pending resolution of their immigration cases. That agreement was signed by, during the Clinton administration in 1997. Then in 2015, a federal judge ruled against the Obama administration and ordered that families with children should also be released as quickly as possible. Earlier this year, in one of his many public rallies, this one in West Virginia, the president blasted immigrants in the country's immigration laws, including uh, the, the catch and release. Uh, and he said, we're toughening up the border. 
We cannot let people enter our country. We have no idea who they are, what they do, where they come from. We don't know if they're murderers, if they're killers, if they're MS-13, Trump went on. We're throwing them out by the hundreds. He boasted that he had described immigrants as racist, as rapists when he announced his presidential candidacy, saying that he had recently learned during the journey north made by a caravan of Honduran refugee, uh, migrants that, quote, women are raped at levels they've never seen before. Mr. Trump also said his administration had cracked down on MS-13, the transnational gang with links to El Salvador. This is the kind of stuff and crap that we're allowing to our country, and we can't do it, the president says. This is the president. Well, what about these gangs? As I'm sure has already been discussed in earlier panels, the massive flows of Central American refugees to the United States during the 1980s were a direct result of the civil wars in Salvador, Nicaragua, and Guatemala, all of them fueled by US military aid and intervention on the side of right-wing governments and paramilitary groups. There were just 94,000 Salvadorans living in the United States in 1980. A decade later, there were more than 700,000. Likewise, the Guatemalan population jumped from 71,000 in 1980 to 226,000 10 years later. And the Nicaraguan population from 25,000, just 25,000 in 1980, to 125,000 10 years later. Many of the young people who fled back then after being traumatized by those wars settled with their parents in the barrios of Los Angeles, San Francisco, Houston, Washington, D.C., out in uh, uh, Nassau and Suffolk County in uh, Long Island, where they grew up. A small but significant percentage ended up in street gangs, like MS-13, which was created in Los Angeles. <laughs> MS-13 was founded in Los Angeles and served times in the US prison system. But once they were released, since many had never achieved legal status or even if they had, if they had a, a residency status because they were convicted of felonies, they were deported back to their home countries and home in the most loose uh, definition of the term. Between 1998 and 2005, the United States deported some 46,000 convicts, ex-convicts. As soon as they got out of jail, they'd load them on planes and they'd ship them to Honduras and they shipped them to Salvador and they shipped them to the Dominican Republic. Uh, three countries, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras received more than 90% of all deportations from the United States. That was according to the USAID, right? 90% of all the deportations went to those three countries. Many of them were members of the 18th Street and Salvatrucha gangs who had arrived in the United States as toddlers but had never secured legal residency or citizenship. They joined the gangs as a way to feel included in a receiving country that often actively impeded their integration. On being sent back to the countries of origin that they barely knew, deportees reproduced the structures and behavior patterns that had provided them with support and security in the United States. They swiftly found local clicas or chapters of their gang in their communities of origin. In turn, these clicas 
rapidly attracted local youth and either were supplanted or absorbed pandillas, local gangs. The availability of U.S. guns combined with these U.S.-raised deportees produced the killing fields that Central America has now become. Just compare homicide rates in the United States and in key Central American cities. The homicide rate in New York City today is 1.4 people killed for every 100,000 people. 1.4. The homicide rate in Chicago, which is notorious, right, for all the shootings and killings, today is 18.6, far higher than New York, 18.6 compared to 1.4. Honduras has the world's highest murder rate. El Salvador is second in the world for a murder rate. Guatemala is ninth. Eight of the world's 50 deadliest cities in 2016 were in Central America. In the city of San Salvador, the murder rate is 130 per 100,000. 130 per 100,000 compared to 1.4 in New York and 18 in Chicago. Uh, in Soyapango, another Salvadoran city, the murder rate is 90 per 100,000. In San Pedro Sula, in Honduras, the murder rate is 105 per 100,000. In Tegucigalpa, the murder rate is 80 per 100,000. So what you have is the fuel, not only did we fuel the dislocation that created the first Central American uh, refugee problem, we have helped to foster and create the second huge refugee problem uh, with, by first exporting the criminal element back to their countries and then of course the easy access to uh, the military hardware that has always been there since the Central American wars uh, that these gangs were able to uh, acquire. Even when people fleeing cartels prove that their life is in imminent danger, immigration judges in this country routinely deny their claims and say it's just generalized violence. Based on such arguments, US courts denied 88% of asylum applications from Mexicans between 2012 and 17, 79% of those from El Salvador, 78% of those from Honduras. Those are numbers pretty similar to the rejection of asylum claims back in the 1980s during the Civil Wars, right? Uh, the Central Americans were not allowed into the country as refugees or asylum seekers back during the Civil Wars of the 80s. In contrast, only 20% of applications for asylum from China are denied, only 20%. There's no reports of mass, you know, of all these killings and homicides in China, uh, but uh, those from Central America are denied. In other words, whether you're being killed by paramilitaries or by street gangs that originated in the United States or by your authoritarian government, you will not be granted asylum to this country if you are from Central America. As for getting tough on murderers and drug dealers who are here illegally, which Trump continually boasts about, the facts reveal a completely different story. 
Attorney General Jeff Sessions reported himself last year that 52% of all federal prosecutions in 2016 were for immigration violations. Some 69,000 people were prosecuted by the federal government, more, uh, more than half of all prosecutions. Uh, that includes uh, gun running and drug trafficking and uh, any other kinds of federal crimes. More than half of all prosecutions were for immigration violations. Just 1% were for violent crimes. Of those of of the of the sixty three thousand other people, citizens or non citizens, uh, that were prosecuted, only one percent were for violent crimes. Fact based research shows just the opposite of a wave of crime by immigrants. As the Washington Post reported, one new metadata study by Charles E. Kubrin of the Kubrin of the University of California at Irvine. Uh, and Graham Ousey of the College of William Mary analyzed 51 studies done between 1994 and 2014, a 20-year period, on the relationship between immigration and crime, and found that, if anything, immigration reduces crime. Where you have immigrants, you have less violent, period, Kubrin said. You would be hard-pressed, Kubrin said, to find a criminologist to tell you that immigration and crime are related. In this area, it's unbelievable the consistency with which this occurs. And uh, oh, in those sanctuary cities that Trump is and Sessions love to attack, studies have shown that there are 35.5 fewer crimes per 10,000 people in sanctuary cities than in non-sanctuary. Uh, in sanctuary counties than in non-sanctuary counties. The medium household income is higher. The poverty rate, unemployment rate is lower in sanctuary cities than in non-sanctuary cities. In other words, quality of life is better in sanctuary cities than in non-sanctuary cities. Yet the, Trump, the Sessions, Sessions and Trump want to penalize those cities by taking away federal monies. This is pure irrational madness at work. The president has also claimed that millions of people, many of them uh, immigrants, voted illegally in the 2016 election. <laughs> Quote, they always like to say, oh, that's a conspiracy theory, Mr. Trump said. Not a conspiracy theory, folks. Millions and millions of people. There's so many things patently wrong with this Trumpian claim that it's mind-boggling that a major leader would dare utter them or that anyone would believe them. Uh, this follows Trump's actions over the past two years, his canceling of DACA, his Muslim ban with the courts, his shocking remarks about El Salvador, Haiti, and other African countries as shitholes, and his threats to end temporary protected status for some of those migrants, and of course, his separation of families and mass detention of children. So what are we to make of all of this? Well, I think the key thing to understand in the battles over immigration uh, and uh, I will end my prepared remarks with this, is that immigration law is not the Ten Commandments. It is not immutable truths of what is uh, civilized behavior between human beings. Immigration law, in, especially in a country 
that is an immigrant settler state uh, has always reflected the balance of political forces at a given time. The battle over defining who is legally an American and who is not. And that definition has changed throughout the history of the country, depending on the balance of forces. Right? In, the, uh, in the 1880s, it was illegal for any Chinese to enter the country. That doesn't make it right. It just means that the balance of forces at that time in the country dictated that that was the immigration law. And uh, in the 1920s, uh, only Northern Europeans could enter the country. That was legal. It doesn't make it right. <laughs> right. So we have to separate immigration law from justice and morality and understand that they don't always necessarily coincide. Uh, and take it out of this idea that people are breaking the law. <laughs> no, people are breaking the law that certain power forces at this particular time determined because they had the votes for it to be the law. But that doesn't mean that it is just and right. Uh, and so, uh, and the reality is that the bigger question, not just in this country, because I, I always try to battle against American exceptionalism. There's nothing exceptional about what's going on here. Uh, look, at, look at France, look at Germany, look at Sweden, look at Denmark, look at Austria. They're all battling over this issue of the mass migrations of people that have been forced to leave their countries as a result of war, uh, interventions, and, uh, and the huge uh, wealth gaps that have continued to arise in the world as a result of unbridled uh, capitalism. So that I think that the issue then becomes, how, well, how do people of conscience and of faith try to get people to stop going for the headlines and the sound bites of build a wall and say, look, let's have a re reasoned discussion. How did we get to where we are today? What's the roots of the problem? And then how can we craft a society that uh, provides a humane uh, approach to all of its, uh, of all of its citizens and all of its residents. So that, that's, the, that's the big question, getting people to actually dig a little deeper. Uh, unfortunately, social media doesn't necessarily help you with that because you gotta limit your characters and you gotta limit, you know, your, uh, you gotta have an image and you gotta have all this other stuff. Uh, but I, I believe it can be done and I believe what people of good faith can get it done. So I'll leave it there, and I don't know if there are questions. I'd be glad to take any that you might throw at me.